By now, you've all heard of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0, the latest book published by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. It's more than just another wine book. The fully updated second edition was inspired by students of the Vinitali International Academy and painstakingly reviewed and revised by an expert panel of certified Italian wine ambassadors from across the globe. The book also includes an edition by Professore Attilio Scienza, Italy's leading vine geneticist. The benchmark producer's feature is a particularly important aspect of this revised edition. The selection makes it easier for our readers to get their hands on a bottle of wine that truly represents a particular grape or region. To pick up a copy, just head to Amazon.com or visit us at MamaJumboShrimp.com. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and this week, I'm really, really pleased to have as a guest, Deborah Gray, who is the author of the book, How to Import Wine. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Steve. It's wonderful to be here. To give the people listening a a point of reference on this, um, I've been consulting with clients on how to come to the U.S. market for probably 30 years working on on brand development stuff. And then one day I found somebody wrote a book called How to Import Wine. And and I just called you up on the phone and said, my God, this is the best thing I've ever heard of. I mean, how come I never heard of you? Who are you? Where did you come from? And it was probably like maybe 10, 15 years ago. But from that, that point in time, I've just always been amazed at what you've written, and now it's come out in the third edition. Tell us about where the book came from and what your background is and how you came to do it, and why is there a third edition? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, um, starting at the beginning, I suppose, and trying to go through quickly, uh, you know, my background, I will be here all day. Um, I started my wine importing business in 1992 to help my uh, family, my father's brand. He had had two disastrous experiences with U.S. wine importers. And I thought, even though I'd never been in the wine business, had never had any experience in any facet of it. I I thought, look, I really would love to do this. So I started the business then with uh, several Australian wineries and, um, and embarked on what was a really great and growing career, an important career, you know, lots of very, very um, steep learning curve challenges and so on as you proceed. But Australian wines went from, when I started, from unknown to very, very popular. And uh, I was very busy and traveling the country and so on. And then the recession hit. So 2000, at the end of 2007, the wine sales were, were dropping around the country. And really coming into 2008, the real beginning of the recession, I suppose, for most people, they ground to a halt. 
exchange rates went in the wrong direction with Australia. There was real pushback to ratings that uh, for wines that were falling apart, uh, even though they got high ratings. There were all kinds of things. And as a result, I had almost no sales. Uh, even for very highly rated, family-owned, well-regarded vineyards. So in, I started pivoting towards some um, other things, uh, helping other people who had lost their importers. And in 2009, I had a lot of time on my hands. And as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. I decided it was time for me to write a book. I had wanted to do it for a long time. I felt a real need to help people learn things that they didn't have to uh, reinvent the wheel to learn like I did. I had nobody in the business when I started that would help me. I had my first uh, distributor in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta at the time. My first distributor said, don't do it. And when I w w went to him with a, the idea I wanted to do this with my family's wine, don't do it. Terrible idea. You'll never make it. So I learned everything by myself. And uh, through terrible trial and error, the executive editor of Wine Spectator said when he reviewed my book, these were often painful lessons. And, uh, <laughs> and they, it's true. I, I thought of it as, I'm just going to get through this. I'm I'm stubborn. I believe in getting through to the other side and I was just going to do it. So I thought I wanted to write a book. And that's how the, um, the first edition of How to Import Wine came about. I then thought I've got to find a uh, publisher. I was told, don't worry about finding an agent because uh, and it, it won't be uh, of interest to an agent because they won't have enough sales to have commission. Um, I researched publishers, uh, looked in, uh, you know, online and also in places like Barnes and Noble, and I'd look at wine books and I'd look at business books, and and one stood out for me, and I I rang that publisher because I didn't see their submission guidelines, and I ended up speaking to the editor, which I thought was very unusual, but. I said, look, I have this book and this is the subject matter. And he goes, we don't have anything like that. And I said, I know. I've researched this. I know. And I didn't have any help when I first started. And that's why I've written it. He goes, you've written it. And I said, yes, it's finished. And he goes, well, send it to me. I, I, I want it. So that was the start of my publishing journey. So fast forward, that was 2000. Came out in 2011. Lots of editing and so on. And or as you do, there's all this formatting and insertion of photos and diagrams and templates. So, and then it missed a publishing kind of, you know, optimum time in 2010. So it came out in 2011. And you've, you revised it once and now the new third revision is out. And tell us what's different about the... Uh, third revision from where you were originally in, in edition number two? Well, the second edition came out in 2018, I think. So it seems like not that far back. But in fact, a great deal has changed since then. You know, we were in the middle of a recession when I wrote the first one, a very deep global recession. And we were in the midst of the pandemic, 
when I wrote this third one. You should stop writing books, just point of reference. <laughs> my writing precipitates them. I think I, I, I see what's happening, and I think we've got a lot of things changing. And, of course, um, uh, trends were changing, uh, buying habits were changing, all sorts of, of things that were, I think, important to address. In addition, regulations and licensing and how TTB, uh, the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax and Trade Bureau, um, was operating, uh, did uh, change because everything also was online. And there were no, for licensing, for example, you didn't go into an office anymore. Um, there was so much that was now put online or you handled with phone calls and so on. Lots of things changed. As a result, I and, and apparently I can't stop writing because I not only revised the entire book, but I added 102 pages. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I'm just thinking about somebody once told me, a creative director of mine when I was on the advertising side said, writing is, is very easy. You just put a blank piece of paper in the typewriter. That's how old this is, right? He says, and open up a vein. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I love writing. I love research. I love writing. And I love the pursuit of details to get them right. So it took me, you know, a year or even though it was a revision and not a new book, it took me a year or so just to, to do that. I mean, very fortunate to be the recipient of wonderful reviews and very kind remarks. But I live in fear that somebody points a finger and says, no, it isn't like that at all. <laughs> and so, uh, it, it, you know, I, I really uh, take pains. And, and not that I won't have made mistakes or I'm not completely up to date in some area perhaps, but um, I hope that it's worth uh, buying the uh, another edition, even if somebody's had, well, certainly if they've had the first one, um, it, you know, so many things that would be completely outdated in that one. So uh, if somebody did want to buy the book, give us the title and where would they go to buy it? It's How to Import Wine, an Insider's Guide. It's the third edition and it is available currently only on Amazon. Now it's Amazon in any country, but that's the only place at the moment. Okay. So go to Amazon.com and uh, order How to Import Wine, an Insider's Guide, third edition. I self-published this and where uh, because I my publisher has not paid. My books continue to sell, um, Steve, even though, you know, it's not a New York Times bestseller. It's still thousands and thousands of dollars. He hasn't paid me royalties in three years. And I finally, instead of suing him, I got a, 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 because that's then a lot of money for me to pursue, I got an attorney to get my rights back. So he didn't pay me anything of the thousands he owes me, but I got my rights back. And, and I didn't realize, and you learn a lot along the way, but the, you get your rights back to your content, but you don't get your rights back to the books that are out there. So I had to get a third edition out there to, you see, to stop not stop because he can still sell the, the second edition apparently in the first edition, but to supersede those sales if possible. Cool. Very interesting. I, I it would, never would have thought about that. Yeah. It kind of is a, a great phrase. I like to repeat that experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. So now you've got all this experience and yeah. let's flip over to 
what do you do for a day job these days other than writing books? Uh, you've got the third edition out there. That's, that's, that's great. You had at one point in time a, an import company called Bluestone Imports. And I believe at the time you were living in Southern Cal, San Diego. Mm-hmm. And now, so what do you do for a day job? Well, I am primarily consulting. I still import two brands, but as more of an agent than a hands-on, I don't do the, there is no such thing, by the way, for anybody listening as an agent importer. There's no such term, but if you are doing what I'm doing, it's the compliance and logistics of it. My licenses are in place and current. I have a licensed location in California. So I'm a licensed importer and distributor, but my current uh, location is in Australia. So I import these two brands and somebody else is doing the sales in the US. In addition, I am consulting, which is probably my primary business. I enjoy that tremendously. I consult these days over Zoom or WhatsApp, on email, which a lot of people use uh, to ask me questions. I do a lot of other services for them, which are again online or email. And till recently, I was uh, teaching at San Diego State. I was teaching wine importing and distribution for nine years. I had give that up. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I had to give it up because of the location here. And uh, it, it was with such regret. But, um, you know, that's that's one of those things when you, you know, trade off. But because I, I love teaching, I loved my students, I loved the classes. And so primarily consulting, doing some more writing and the um, importing. So tell me a little bit about the consulting. I mean, you and I kind of operate in parallel ways. I think we work in different modes and models, but we're doing the same thing. We're working with um, export brands who want to come to the U.S. market and help them address and overcome the challenges. In many cases, they don't know what the challenges are. That's the reason you wrote your book and I wrote mine. But even with the information published in the book, when it comes down to actually making things happen, it's still challenging. So knowing all the parameters about it is very different than being able to do it. Having done it many, many times yourself, it becomes much more efficient and insightful when you're doing it. What kind of services are the clients coming to you and asking for? And is that the kind of services that you think they should be asking for or that they really need? Interesting question. Well, my current book is 422 pages. And if I were to cover everything that people need to start their businesses, it would be 2000 pages. And even then, I think somebody would come to me and say, oh, but I still need this, or I didn't quite get that, or I got all of this information, but how do I apply it here? So the kinds of consulting I do is a great percentage of them as new new importers or people who are wondering, should they become importers or should they become distributors? I have uh, so-called foreign wineries, non-US wineries who uh, come to me and ask how they can get into the market. They're looking for an entry point. They're looking for the way to attract an importer. 
uh, and, 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 and the logistics of maybe, you know, doing it. So there's all sorts of things. They often, no, they usually don't understand anything about the actual um, uh, mechanics of it. And I always tell people, my objective is to not just demystify it for you, but to save you time and money in avoiding the pitfalls that I, for example, fell into every single one. And I, I think the benefit, you know, of my experience is a great asset in trying to help these people navigate the U.S. That's great. The way I've, I've phrased that is help people not make the same dumb mistakes everybody else made before them again for the first time. It seems that people seem bent on doing things that don't work, that everybody in the industry knows it doesn't work. But since they're not familiar with the industry, they think, it will work. You use the term um, agency brand, uh, usually for the benefit of the audience, the agency brand means that you're selling the products to the importer and the importer then takes on some, um, most, if not all of the responsibility of actually selling it. So they would have a sales uh, force and so forth and distribution network and all that kind of stuff. But what seems to be happening in the U.S. is there's fewer and fewer importers who are maintaining that agency brand model and going much more, or there, there's movement towards having some stake of equity and or ownership or in the brand itself in some manner, shape, or form. I've seen this in a lot of the contracts that, that I've been negotiating have you been seeing that as well? And what's your point of view on that? I have not, to be honest with you, Steve. I know that there are many different ways that people are now trying to navigate the new markets, the new uh, ways of doing business. I, I'm asked often about online sales and how they can go about getting direct to consumer. I know that they want to not only reach the end user, uh, and uh, but get those extra margins. I, I don't get a lot of people uh, who are invested in the brands as much, although the brands themselves often want to partner with uh, some sort of a compliance company in the U.S., which can be very attractive, but they have to understand that if they're going to use that kind of a model, they have to also have somebody on the ground because it does provide the licenses, it does provide a lot of the logistics and compliance, but they need to investigate further and see whether it's also going to provide the sales help. Yeah, the uh, another word for that is service importers and, and some that um, we're all familiar with and I've worked with in the past include MHW, Park Street, uh, L&T Imports, USA Wine West. So you you but you you mentioned something I think that that's critically important here and that is people are looking to go direct to the consumer, they're looking to bike past the three-tier system and you know the argument is gee, why is everybody else making more money on my wine? than I am when I have to own the land, deal with the weather and the equipment and personnel and the risk and weather and all that kind of stuff. They're looking for a, an easy way around. Is there a way to bypass the U.S. system or is this just a pipe dream? Bypass is not the right 
term these days. There is no way to bypass the three-tier system. There is a way to find new ways through it or to uh, take advantage of more margins. So unfortunately, it's very three-tier system, which for anybody who doesn't know, and that may apply to many people listening, is in the case of the imported brand, it is the uh, importer. It's, it's when it comes into the country. So it's the importer, the distributor, and the retailer. So at each of these places, there are markups. And the, 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 the U.S. model, which came in after prohibition, required this kind of separation of tiers um, as a way of, I suppose, a protection. But what it's really protecting is each state's distributor. And those distributors in those early days post-prohibition had enormous power to legislate and lobby and get laws in place. They have, in many cases, since been challenged and successfully challenged. So there's a lot of, of, of opportunity and very porous areas of the three-tier system so that you can do um, uh, all aspects of it in some ways, for example, in Oregon and California, you can use a third party, you can be an importer and distributor, which are two wholesale tiers, and, and get a third party to do the retail tier, but you still control it. So there are ways to do that. Uh, there are ways to, in a way, circumvent the distributor, but you're not really by selling to a chain in a state. So you're not really selling to that chain as the importer, for example, or the winery. You are selling to their clearing distributor and something happens called touch the dock. Your product goes into that state. It has to go to the distributor's warehouse in effect, touching the dock, exchange paperwork, and on it goes to the retail chain. Now, because that clearing distributor is making a very nominal amount, you have a very attractive arrangement with that chain, and it's in their best interest to continue to do business with you because their markups can be really good and your markup can be really good. So there are many ways around, if you will, the traditional three-tier system, but it's still firmly in place in a lot of states. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. Uh, you touched on an issue there, and I think it, it's really important. There's, there's a tendency to think, well, as I said, why is everybody making more money on my brand than I am? And that has to do with the markup at, at, at each level. But it doesn't mean that the distributor's not doing anything. And in fact, in, in absolute counterpoint to that, the distributors do a ton. Um, and they're the ones that have the relationship with on- and off-premise retailers um, and can facilitate doing all this stuff. So it's not something that you don't want to do. But you want to find a way where everybody in the in the system is making money. But bottom line is you can't manage somebody else's margin. So figure out a system that works for you so that you are making an adequate amount of money in the U.S. There is, because of the three-tier system, generally speaking, when it comes to wine, we look at 
you know, uh, retail price as being something like three and a half to four times the X seller price. And that's where a lot of people get, you know, very upset about. But the reality is each of those tiers is doing something very important. And that's been basically part of the system since prohibition in, in 1933. So rather than trying to find ways around it, the, the better solution I found is to find ways to work within it. Very true. And also what people don't perhaps think about or recognize or understand is that those price markups are not those margins are not profit margins. They are trucking and warehousing and state taxes and local taxes and uh, salespeople and so on and commissions and whatever. There's a lot that goes on within uh, the, that uh, each tier that it takes a lot of money and the importer travels and the importer is spending money on shipping and trucking and, and so on and, and incentivizing and all of those things. In some cases, though, it does give you, if you can control more of those tiers in a way that still works within uh, the legal system, it gives you not only better margins, but it gives you more control over your brand. And, and more exposure to more places to sell it. And at the end of the day, that's what we all want to do is sell more for more to more. And um, that's kind of what the distributors have is the relationship with the many retailers in a, in a, in a territory. But back to the, po the point about the import structure, one of the other options that a lot of people ask about is, well, can I set up uh, my own import operation in the U.S. In many cases, it's the ones that have done it and have done it successfully. I think of Santa Margarita USA. Uh, Pasqua has just recently done it. Obviously, I'm thinking in terms of Italian wines, Zonin. Um, it, it allows them to get 100% of whatever the resources that they have in the U.S. are focused on their brand exclusively. Um, the flip side of that is you don't get the benefits of all that a distributor is bringing to the party. But for a new to the U.S. brand, is that a strategy that someone should even consider? It is definitely an option, but it is a more complicated option. It's one that could have uh, tremendous rewards ultimately, but the uh, logistics of it can be quite complicated and would need guidance. Uh, I think that uh, to, to avoid having it really be a, a failure or not even get off the ground to begin with, you'd need some consulting uh, help and uh, really some, some expertise to be able to do it. It is doable for certain people, but it would have to um, be planned out. So that's what you and I exist in the world for, to help somebody kind of parse their way through this. I actually have done that for a couple of people. I and it and they're people who are new to the business, have some resources, had some uh, ability to set up a, an office. Both of them, it happened to be California, although I consult to people all over. They were one was from Austria and the other from Mexico, and each of them had. Uh, the right components in place, but really needed those steps that they didn't have. A lot of missing steps along the way. It's like being able to see to the other side of the canyon, but not having a bridge yet. Yeah, great, great analogy. So 
Well, that leads to this question. What are, can you give us uh, an example or two of the common mistakes many people new to the U.S. market make? How long do we have? (laughs) Not long enough. How long is your book? 424 pages? Right. (laughs) Pick a page. (laughs) Putting together the wrong mix in a portfolio. Uh, having wines that compete with each other, for example, and and as I say, cannibalize each other, Uh, not considering your market, looking at your own palate uh, or relying on your own palate and not a buyer's palate, going to friends and saying, what do you think? Oh, I love this. And they're all drinking away, you know, in the sunset. And you go to an an actual buyer and somebody who is sommelier or somebody who really has some knowledge and they say, yeah, this is quite good. How much is it? Oh no, couldn't do that. That's way too expensive. It's also not considering uh, the right mix in your portfolio and bringing in too much of it, not considering warehousing fees while it sits there getting older. It is many, many things and really not looking, you know, one of the biggest things, and I'm not a big uh, finance person. Uh, that wasn't really my back. My education was in management, but not in the wine industry, but not really finance. I've got a rudimentary knowledge of spreadsheets and things, but I think it's extremely important to put together a budget, a mission statement and a budget. Now, the mission statement doesn't have to be something that you put anywhere or put on your 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 website, but something that you say, this is what I want to accomplish. This is where, how I want to go about it. And the budget says, this is what I'm allocating to freight, to uh, licensing, to the purchase of wine, uh, and so on. And that way you see, oh, gosh, I guess I'm not either this wine I can't afford to buy because it's only going to sell at this, or I can't, I don't have the money to start with this amount of, of purchase. One of the things that people do, and I'll I'll stop after this, I think, because I could go on as really I could go on forever. But one of the things that people think they need to do is put together a whole container. And they because it is, yes, it's more economical per case if you can fill your own container. But if you factor in how long it's going to sit in a warehouse and not having the distribution and how long it's going to take you to sell it and having had to pay for it, it's not economical. It's much better to bring in a pallet or a few, 20, 40, 50 cases and see, uh, you know, really keep within that budget. Okay. One of the first things that potential people in the trade, um, importers, distributors, retailers, whoever you're talking to, um, are going to ask is, do you have scores? And oftentimes the reason they're doing that is because they want to end the conversation because if the answer is no, they can politely say, well, when you get scores, give me a call back, goodbye. So they don't have to waste their time to do it. So having scores is something that preempts uh, a no answer. So I like to counsel my people to get scores and get numbers. There's a lot of argument about whether, you know, Wine Spectator, but Wine Spectator doesn't allow you to enter brands that are not currently sold in the U.S. and on and on. But scores seem to have a very significant, play a very significant role in consumers' attitudes and less so in the trade. Can you comment on that? I think scores overall play a much uh, more reduced role than they used to. 
When I got a 98 Parker rating from the wine advocate for my wines, which I did, 95, 97, 98, it just, it, there was no question of having to sell it. It just flew out the door. When the recession hit, I couldn't sell those wines at all. And that became, as we moved into sort of uh, the consumption trends changing, that became a little bit part of the pushback is that people didn't want to rely on spores as much. They wanted more of their own um, you know, peer uh, recommendations, uh, experimenting, going and, and looking for things that to, to buy more economical wine and so on. Scores, I think, are still very important for high-end wines, and they're still attainable and achievable and work for high-end wines. And I know that from personal experience. But it is in concert with many other things, um, the, working the market, what type of a distributor you have, how good those distributor salespeople are, going, are at going out and selling the product, what connections they have how good their reputation is so that they can go in and say, look what I found, I have this great wine, you know, you you need to try it, and they will. Now, when it comes to finding a distributor, yes, that, that becomes an initial sort of carrot, I suppose, but I think it's still very possible to find them without it, depending upon who you target and uh, what kind of wines you have. Um, one point I mentioned when you were talking about margins earlier is one of the tools you had in your earlier editions, I haven't seen edition three yet, I look forward to, to getting it in a day or two, but you have some price structure tools in there, spreadsheets that people can refer to. Is that correct? I do. And that's a good opportunity for me to say, I don't do what a lot of people do. And this is where going back to saying I'm not the finance person, but I do know where pricing sits. And I make it really, really simple. We cannot, as importers or wineries, we cannot control the distributor. We cannot control the, the um, retailer and we can't control the restaurant. So you can't say, okay, we can factor in this for trucking and this for markups and this for uh, for, for state taxes and so on. But by making it simple markups at each tier, I believe I've arrived at a retail that covers even sort of higher end places where the retail might be a little bit higher. Maybe it's lower in some places. Maybe it's middle of the road in others. This will be a general retail. And I will say also that it's crept up over the, over the years so that although I think the importer markup is pretty static and perhaps it, it should or could go up, the distributor and retailer is definitely higher. And well, when we say their markup, it's not really so much their, their markup as all the, the attendant costs. Fuel has gone up for trucking, maybe commissions and salaries and uh, rents and all those kinds of things. So, but definitely trucking and fuel. So um, that's what I did. Bam, 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 three tiers, three markups. 
three margins. One of the things I like to end uh, my interviews with is a question of what's the big takeaway? Is there something that somebody listening to this podcast can put to use immediately from some of the things that we talked about? What, what What's the big takeaway from your perspective? Okay. Well, despite all the challenges that we have encountered as, as a, an economy in the U.S. and globally, I believe this is still an exciting and dynamic industry. And there's still opportunity for new importers and new wineries entering the market, new brands. I'm still passionate after 30 years and in helping people and about uh, helping people realize their dreams. I think that the important thing for anybody starting out with it is to understand that they cannot do it without prior knowledge and experience. So they need to have resources. They need to have either people or or tools or mentors or consultants or real guidance because there are too many ways in which to make expensive mistakes. So that, I suppose, is what I think about how uh, people should approach it in looking at the U.S. market. It's not a throw it against the wall and see what sticks. It can be a very worthwhile endeavor. It can be a very fruitful and joyful and productive endeavor, or it could be something that is just not going to work if you don't have the right tools. Great. We're talking today with Deborah Gray, author of uh, How to Import Wine, an insider's guide, which is available on Amazon. And I highly recommend, and has been influential to me, um, it's a resource I keep by my desk, and it influenced me in, when I was writing my book and also doing consulting. So, Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate the opportunity. So this is Steve Ray saying thank you for listening, and join us again next week for another edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast.